Hello, family. God bless you guys. If you are a guest or a curious skeptic with us this morning or this afternoon, we're really glad that you're here and hope that God speaks to you. Uh, grab your copy of God's Word. Open it up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We've been looking at this same story for the last uh, three weeks, and each week we've been meditating on the fact that the King of Heaven, the Messiah, the, the Savior of sinners came as a little, weak infant. And we've just been pulling one of those details out and just kind of meditating on that each week. And today we're going to have a little bit of overlap um, of what we talked about last week. If you remember last week, we focused on the poverty of Christ's birth. Well, today we focus on the weakness of his birth. And we're also going to talk about what does, what does his weakness mean for us. It's really good news. So with that said, would you please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angel went away with them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. We thank you for who you are and that you came for us. Lord, we thank you that you are a speaking God. You are not silent. You talk to us, and we need you to speak to us today, now more than ever. You say that all people are like grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thank you for telling us something that endures forever. And so now, Lord, would you do what I cannot do? Would you give all of us ears that want to listen to you? Give us all open hearts that receives every good enduring word you have to say to us. Penetrate us, change us for our blessing and for your glory. In the sacred name of Jesus, I ask, amen. Amen. The gospel of Jesus is basically the good news of what God has done for us. It's not about what we do for God. The gospel is what God has done for 
us. The gospel doesn't address surface needs. It doesn't address surface discomforts that you and I may have, but it administers medicine to the deepest dysfunctions, the deepest desires and needs of the human heart. It goes right to the, the source of the matter. And though, though we don't like to talk about this uh, very often, the deepest need that we all have is to be accepted by a holy, morally perfect creator. That's the deepest need that we all have. Now, we don't normally feel that that's our deepest need, amen? I, mean, I don't really go around feeling that's my deepest need. Uh, what we typically feel, since we're very social creatures, is a deep desire to be accepted by other people. We feel that. We feel that very readily, I think. Uh, we we want to be accepted by others, whether that's a particular social group at school that we fit in with, and we want to be accepted by them so it'll go better for us. Or maybe it's a team of coworkers on a project that we're doing. Or maybe it's our boss or our mom or our sister or our spouse or that nice policeman that just pulled us over. We want to be found acceptable. We want to be pleasing in their sight. Now, we don't feel the need to be acceptable with everybody, but we better be acceptable to somebody. I mean, we want to be in with somebody that matters. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I want to suggest today that that somebody who matters is God himself. What I mean is that that is the acceptance under the acceptance that we all crave. That's the acceptance under the acceptance that you and I all want from the people around us. We really want to be accepted by the creator, by God. And here's the good news of great joy that these angels announce peace on earth among those whom God is pleased. Good news. God who is perfectly holy, perfectly pure, completely powerful, God who requires righteousness of all who would come near to him has accepted unrighteous sinners with open arms and a big smile on his face. I don't know what picture of God that you have. The Bible says right here, this is the picture of God we ought to have. It's good news. Here's the gospel, which means good news. The one person whose acceptance or rejection of you matters the most has accepted you. The one whose opinion of you carries immense authority for all eternity says that he is pleased with you. Yes, you. Now the question is, how can a perfectly holy God be, be pleased with people like us? I mean, have you looked in the mirror lately, right? How can a perfectly holy, morally pure God be pleased with people like us who constantly ignore him? Just go through our day and don't even think a thing about him. At best, and at worst, outright reject him. How is this possible without him, him being unfair and an unjust God? To just kind of wink at all that. How can he accept us? 
Well, the angel tells us how this is possible. It says that God has sent a Savior who makes us acceptable. He makes us pleasing to the Lord. In, in fact, they say, here's a sign that tells us that this good news of peace with God is really real. Here's the sign that it's actually true. There's this visible, physical, historical sign that you and I can go check out. This isn't a personal, private experience. They say, here's a sign so you can know. Isn't that great of God? Look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. Take that personal. Put your name in there. This is a sign for Chad. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Here's a sign so you know this is real. A baby. The baby's a sign. We talked about the manger last week. We're going to talk about the baby this week. Here's how much God loved you and I through the incarnation. Christ was made weak like us to make us acceptable to God. Christ was made weak like us to make us acceptable to God. And so today we're going to look at uh, what this weakness meant for Christ, because it meant something for him. And then we're going to turn and look at what this weakness means for us today. Okay? So first, Christ's weakness was costly to him. Christ's weakness was costly for him. When God the Son put on flesh, when he was born of a woman, he came into this world, he suffered severe limitations. He suffered severe restrictions when he did this. Look at Philippians 2, 6-7. It kind of explains the story that we read. The apostle says that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. So he is equal with God, right? He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Well, how did he do that? Right here. By taking the form of a servant. Well, what does that mean? That's the next clause. By being born in the likeness of men. That's how it happened. Okay? Now let's be clear. Paul is not saying that Jesus simply appeared to become human. But underneath that skin suit he was wearing, he was just really immortal God. Putting on a really good act. No, Jesus wasn't like the Terminator. You guys remember the Terminator, right? You know, has that synthetic skin on the outside and has facial expressions and looks really human-like, but when you peel it back, it's just robotic, unfeeling, unflinching, uncaring robot. That's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus that's been revealed in the Scriptures to us. And this matters. No, Jesus actually became fully, truly human, yet without losing his divine nature. And he paid a cost to become fully human. That's the point I want us to kind of meditate on. He paid a cost to become human. I'll give you some examples here. Think about it this way. The all-present God, omnipresent, Everywhere at the same time in his full presence, right? His all-present God 
became, in a sense, localized in his human nature. Jesus, was not, Jesus couldn't be in Bethany if he was in Bethlehem. He was in one of those places. That's a restriction. He felt that. Almighty God suffered hunger for the very first time because he put on a body that needed food to survive. He felt it was like to say, I'm hungry, when's lunch? This is a desolate place out here. Just like we do, just like you do, and I need food, right? He felt that. He experienced what it was like to be thirsty and the need to drink water, just like you and I do. What did he say on the cross? I thirst, right? He experienced weariness just like we do. Doesn't this blow your mind? The one who never slumbers and never sleeps needed to sleep every day just like we do. And sometimes he didn't get a full night's sleep just like we do and woke up and went to work tired just like we do. Isn't this crazy? And though he deserves to ride in a chariot of fire wherever he went, Jesus had to walk to get somewhere just like we do or ask for a ride. How humbling had that have to be for the Son of God? Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord, the one whom armies of angels salute, give the highest honor to. This is who we're talking about. He went through the embarrassing awkwardness of puberty. If you're a teenager, think about this. He went through puberty. It says that he grew in stature, stature in favor with God and man. Right? His voice cracked. Voice changed. Jesus had parents as a teenager that he had to obey. That's the fifth commandment, right? (laughs) He had parents that he had to obey. Get this, even though he ultimately created his parents that he was obeying and gave them the very breath that they were breathing to tell him what to do that day. It's like, okay, I will submit. Think about what that house must have been like. For, I mean, you may not have liked that, or you may not like that right now with your parents. What had that to be like for him? I mean, if there ever was a teenager that had the right to say, right to say look, you're not my real dad, <laughs> right? Think about this. Uh, I don't have to do what you tell me. It was Jesus, amen? That he submitted to their authority, imperfect as it was. Talk about, and here's the thing, he didn't do it gritting his teeth. He didn't do it gritting his teeth. He gladly, the smile on his face, willingly submitted to his human parents every single day of his short life. How humiliating. How utterly degrading that must and weak feeling to have all that power but not you know what I'm saying for the son of God to endure guys these things are very normal for you and I right 
so normal, we don't really talk that much about it. We just kind of like go through life and do that. But these were costly humiliations for the Most High to experience. The one whose glory is so bright that people cannot even look at him took on flesh which muted his glory. Why? So we could look upon him and see him. He did this for us so that we could actually see him as he came close to us with his arms outstretched. He did it so that we could accept the acceptance that the glorious one made for us without, being, without fear of dying. That's why he muted all that glory. Not, not for his good, for your good, for my good. That's why he took the step down and paid this cost. As the Christmas carol says it so well, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see. Veiled incarnate deity. It's because he was veiled that you could see him. That's kind of an oxymoron, I know, but that's, this is the mystery of Jesus Christ. Jesus also suffered the agony of temptation as a man. Uh, Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It means atonement. Propitiation means atonement. For, be, for because he himself suffered when tempted. Suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? How did he do that? He suffered when he was tempted. He wasn't just tempted. Did you see this detail? He suffered when he was tempted. Like this, I mean, Jesus really was tempted. Did you know that? He was like really legitimately tempted to sin. He did not just appear to be tempted, but secretly had no real pull on him. It had no real draw to him. That's not what the Bible says. We tend to think of that, don't we? Because we magnify his divinity so much. Like that just was like bullets. No. says he suffered when he was tempted. Jesus was genuinely tempted to sin against the Father. He was tempted to go his own way. I'm going to do my own thing. You're not my real parents. He was tempted to seek his own pleasure, to use his power to serve himself. He fought against temptations that attacked his human nature. Get this, every day of his life. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus was tempted every day of his life? Just like us. Just like we're attacked with temptations every day of our life to sin and to please ourselves and go our own way. Because he became human, Jesus suffered when he was tempted. If he hadn't become human, he wouldn't have suffered temptation. Do you see the cost here? This means that Jesus expended real energy to resist temptations to sin every time they assaulted him, every time he didn't get enough sleep, every time he didn't get enough food. Did, 
Do these excuses sound familiar to us when we sin, by the way? When those people that I really love really turn, like disappointed me? He expended real energy every, to resist these temptations. And we know this because there's actually a couple of instances in the scriptures where the Bible records after Jesus resisted temptation that angels actually came and ministered to him in his weakened state. He said, help. And they said, we're here, boss. That's all we know about it, but they ministered to him. They're ministering spirits. It, listen, here's the point. It is costly and it is exhausting and it is even torturous at times to love God and be a human. Somebody say amen. It's not torturous to be human if you don't love God. It's not torturous to love God if you're not a human. Angels do just fine doing that, right? It is torturous and tiring, exhausting to both love God and be a human. Jesus knows that better than you do. As well as you think you know that, he knows that better than you know that. And you know why? Because when we give up under temptation and turn away from God and please ourselves, Jesus didn't. Jesus continued to shove his shoulder into the wind of temptation all the way to the cross and the grave. That's how he knows it better than you and I. Because where we sat down, he said, I'm going to be faithful. I won't sit down under that pressure. I will battle it. Now, this should make you smile. Because why did he subject, and this is the question that I have. Well, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking through this a little bit. I was like, why did he do that, though? Why did he subject himself to this battle in human weakness? In other words, why did he subject himself to do this with one arm tied behind his back? Like with a disadvantage, being in this human likeness and form. Right? Why would he do that? Because he wants you and I to be confident in turning towards him during your temptation for help. DIY culture doesn't work on temptation. It's great for a lot of other things. But he says, I want you to turn to me, and I want you to know that I know it better than you what you're going through, and I will help you. Because of the incarnation, because of the incarnation, Jesus understands our battle against sin better than anyone else does, and he can give us help that actually helps. <laughs> you ever had people try to help you, and that stuff just didn't really, thanks but no thanks, it didn't really work? That's not Jesus. Jesus' help always helps, because he went through it. And if this all wasn't enough, there's more. As a human, Jesus suffered abandonment on the cross. He suffered at, totally being abandoned on the cross. How many disciples in the very end stuck around? Not one. And those were, the, those were his friends, right? Though he never sinned, and though he completely obeyed God with every thought that ever went through his mind, Jesus was killed on a cross. That was his reward for all that wonderful obedience and devotion to the Father. He was killed on a cross. Crucifixion was a form of death that the Romans reserved for the most ungodly specimens of humanity, by the way. 
Advent reminds us that ultimately Jesus was born to die, not live a long life. It was to die for you and me. That's why he came. That's why he came. At the cross, Jesus received not just human rejection in its vilest form, but he received God's rejection at the cross. Instead of feeling the intense pleasure of his father for all his devotion and all of his obedience, Jesus actually felt the intense displeasure and the wrath of God. Instead of feeling the loving acceptance, he experienced in his human nature the total rejection of the father. He said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And what did God say? Nothing. Didn't answer him, right, at that moment. The cross was where Christ's weakness was ultimately and publicly displayed. Hey, if you're really the son of God, why don't you just come on down here and do a miracle, and then we'll believe you. They mocked him, right? To be born a weak baby, to be like us in every way, is incredibly, incredibly costly to Christ. I said it last week. I said it again. The birth of Jesus is not cute. It is costly. We've got to see it that way if it's going to mean anything to us. But you know what? He did all that because he loved us. See, and that's what this means for us. That's what his birth, his weakness means for us. Christ's weakness means acceptance for us. It was costly for him, and it was riches for us. Let's go back to Hebrews 2.17. We'll go real slow through that one verse. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. He had to. There wasn't another way. He had to be made like his brothers for something to be accomplished. He's about ready to tell us what that is. In every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So forgiveness of sin doesn't happen if Jesus isn't actually truly fully human. Okay? The writer of Hebrews tells us that the only way Jesus could make atonement for our sins against God and against one another is that he had to become like us, get this, in every respect. Okay? Human-like wasn't good enough. He had to be human. Goats and lambs, the blood of goats and lambs, could never atone and ultimately pay for the sins that humans commit, right? And why? Why can't, why can't that work? Why can't sheep and lambs and goats and bulls, why can't their blood atone for human sin? Because they are not human. I mean, I'm Captain Obvious here, but like it doesn't, it doesn't transfer, Right? They don't fully represent humans. Only a human can stand in for another human in God's economy here. So, we, I mean, think about it this way. Like, we don't send horses to the House of Representatives, right, in Congress, right? No. What do we send to Congress? Humans. Humans represent us. They, to legally stand in for us, to, to, you know, say the will of the people or to make an argument in our place, supposedly. That's what they're supposed to be doing, right? Jesus had to suffer for our sins as us if he was going to suffer in our place. And so this means that because Jesus is truly divine, Christ's obedience was perfectly pure. Get this, and it was completely effective. 
It was complete, it did exactly what it was supposed to do because of his divinity, because he's God, it's completely effective. There is nothing lacking in his obedience that you and I have to make up or add for ourselves. There's no like moral deeds that like we need to do to kind of like top off what Jesus did. He did 99% and we add the 1% good things that we do. Oh, but in that same token, because, uh, because he's truly uh, man and human, he did all, all his perfect obedience as a real representative of as us. He didn't cheat. You know what I'm saying? His righteousness, therefore, is legally counted as our righteousness. That means like his pleasing the Father in his human nature is counted as us pleasing the Father. That's why it counts. This means that there is no punishment for our sins that we must endure. If we are in Christ, if we are in Christ, and Christ is in the Father, then we're in the Father too. So there's no punishment for our sins that we must endure, no matter what they are. And this also means that his suffering, the wrath of God for our sins, has illegally been applied to us now, legitimately and legally applied to us by faith in Christ. And so that means that there is no good deeds that we have to perform to make God pleased with us. Isn't that great? Jesus has completely pleased the Father for us if we're in Christ. God's not mad at us. He can be, he can, you know, be disappointed in our sin, but as far as his wrath goes, none. He's pleased. God looks at our Savior born in Bethlehem and then says to us, can you visualize this? He looks at his Savior born in Bethlehem and then he looks over at us and he says, peace upon you. I'm looking, I see that, I'm going to say to you. I see that, and I say to you. I see that, and so I say to you, peace upon you. I am pleased with you. I accept you on the basis of what the Messiah, my Messiah, has done in your place. And so no matter who we are, no matter what sin we have committed, there is good news for us. God is pleased with us. God accepts us. He takes us in. Not because we are acceptable in ourselves, not because we're lovely and God should be so lucky we're like in his family. No, because he has made us acceptable. He has made us, by his love, he has made us lovely. Only because the king was willing to become weak. Only because the king was willing to trade insults for the salutes he used to get. Christ received the displeasure of God at the cross so that we could experience God's pleasure with us for all eternity. For all eternity. Christ received the rejection and the wrath of God so that you and I can receive his forgiveness and his total acceptance. Total, not like begrudging acceptance, like, come home. <laughs> come home to me. This good news really is for you and me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Jesus is the, he's the basis for our acceptance with God. 
but we must believe it for it to become ours. That's what the scripture says. We have to believe this by faith for it to be, for, for it to be ours. Like, like the shepherds, we've got to go and see this sight. We've we, we got to go and see this good news. We must accept this acceptance for it to be of any worth to us, for it to be of any value to us. We, let me put it this way. We must bow before a baby. We've got to bow before a baby and go, King Jesus, my Savior. That's it. That's it. We must admit that we need what he's doing in that manger. I need what you're doing in that manger, in that costure pain, and I need what you're doing on the cross and in, and in the resurrection. That's, what we, that, that's how that becomes ours. I need you and what you're doing. I bow before that baby. Now, I forgot to do this last week, <laughs> but each week of Advent, we've been ending by saying a, a, a collective prayer together as a church. And so we've actually printed out copies of that prayer that um, you can take home with you. We're going to put that up. Uh, on our website, the copies are um, outside that door on a ta- on a table out there before you walk out of the building. And so, uh, what I want to do is, I, I just want to encourage you guys to incorporate this prayer, or even just a part of this prayer, in your time with the Lord this week, and just and just like see how He answers this prayer for you. I'd love to hear some stories back about that. That'd be great. So, um, if you got that next slide, we're gonna pray aloud together as a church. Our great King and Savior, you loved us before we ever loved you. While we were enjoying sin, you humiliated yourself by putting on humanity. Love caused you to be born of a woman and live in our place. Love caused you to be weary, hungry, lonely, tempted, scorned, and abandoned. Love tied our offenses to your name so that we might be forgiven of them all. You were rejected so that we would be warmly accepted, forgotten that we might forever be remembered by God. You have given us God's peace, God's pardon, God's pleasure. Who else has loved us like you? Cause us to adore you with our whole heart and desire to please you until we see you face to face. Amen.